Hello and welcome to Show and Tell, the podcast series from the RPG Academy where we bring on a guest and we talk about something cool. Today, something cool is our guest, John Wick. If you're not familiar, Mr. Wick is best well known for his work on the Legend of the Five Rings RPG, as well as the Seventh Sea RPG, both of which won Origin Awards. Mr. Wick is a prolific RPG designer with more than 30 credits to his name. Uh, many of which have been self-published and can be found in various forms on his website, johnwickpresents.com. He is a very opinionated and outspoken member of the RPG industry, Uh, sometimes controversial, I would say, but I found him to be a very pleasant, engaging, and entertaining guest. I had a lot of fun with this interview. Uh, Our resident L5R expert, Jim McClure, is the one who actually set this uh, interview up. He did the interview with me. In fact, I would say he probably did the interview. I interjected every now and then when I could. Uh, But I had a lot of fun with the interview. We have already have an open invite for him to come back so that we can talk to him uh, more. Uh, But the most exciting news for me right now is that after the end of this interview, we asked him about the possibility of him joining us for a catacon, and he said yes. So add him to the growing list of amazing guests that are going to come and hang out with us at a catacon. He's not going to be there as well. We're still going to work out some details as to what he will be doing, uh, what events he wants to run, what events he wants to participate in. Uh, But right now we've got Rich Baker, Robert Schwald, Sean Carmen, now John Wick. From the podcasting side, we have James D'Amato and Kat Cool, formerly Kat Murphy, from the One Shot podcast, campaign podcast. We have DM Mitch and DM Chris from the DM's Block podcast. Uh, We have John and Matt Quiet from Nerds Domain podcast. And more we're working on that we hope to be able to announce soon. Uh, But this isn't about a catacon as much as I try to make everything about a catacon. This is about the interview with John Wick. So we will get on to that show. Here is Show and Tell, Episode 11, Interview with John Wick. With us in the podcast studio tonight, we have John Wick, one of the creators of the L5R game, amongst many other things that he has done, uh, a very opinionated personality in the field of game mastering. And I have with me to my left here, Jim McClure, also known as That L5R Guy. And, and see, I, I keep using that title and I keep using it in... in "Quote unquote rooms of people that I definitely should not be using that in, uh, but but Michael did tell me I'm not allowed to do any interviews myself anymore. Apparently after Sean Carmen, so now now it's both of us this time. But no. I I could not be more excited because again we are here with with John Wick, which is one of the the original creators of Legend of Five Rings. He's a a five time Origin Award winner. He, I mean a list of accolades. John, thank you so much for coming. Oh, no problem. I was glad to. Well, why don't you give us a, a little introduction about yourself? Obviously, I said I said a little bit, but there's there, there's so much to what, what is John Wick. So, uh, why don't you give us a little introduction? Tell us about yourself. I, I was uh, raised in Minnesota and uh, also raised in Georgia, and I uh, started first started uh, working in role playing games when I moved to California and was working for Shadis Magazine uh, as kind of like a staff writer, where I wrote uh, a whole ton of articles, most of them under pseudonyms so that it wouldn't be 
by John Wick, by John Wick, by John Wick. And, uh, and AEG was working on Legend of Five Rings at the time. And uh, I got involved because I had read Miyamoto Musashi, and I had read Sun Tzu, and I had read you know, a whole ton of, of, of Japanese uh, and Chinese literature and philosophy. And uh, I became the guy who was in charge of the story and the flavor text on the cards. And it was a combination, that, and the success of L5R was catching lightning in a bottle. It was a combination of me and Dave Williams and uh, Matt Wilson and DJ Trindle and Matt Starosik and, and Rob Vox and, and Reese Osby and a whole bunch of really, really incredibly smart and talented people who, who put it together. And then after that, I, I made 7th C with AEG. And, and after that, I went on my own and started making my own games, of which there are like 30 years like that. <laughs> So it's kind of a hobby for you then to make games. It sounds like no, it's it's a living. Um, Even better, I've been making a, yeah. Uh, I've been making a living making games since 1995, with a couple of very very rare uh, instances where I was completely burned out and got a regular job, um, but always came back to designing games. And now I'm doing John Wick Presents, and I'm having a lot more success than I have ever had. Uh, mostly because of uh, a guy named Mark Diaz Truman, who's been helping me out as a financial guy on John Wick Presents stuff. He introduced me to Kickstarter, and, well, Kickstarter is, what can we say? It's transformed the game industry. It, it actually, I mean, it has. I'm uh, I'm fairly new to this aspect, like the podcast is only a couple of years old. I've been gaming since I was a kid, but I was always very insular. So even though I played a lot, it was always with the same people at my house all the way through grade school, high school, and even college. I was never part of a larger community. And with the podcast, we've kind of grown into that. And then the Kickstarter sort of happened about the same time. And I am amazed at all the things that I see as, well, this is just somebody's homebrew rules. Like this is like what me and a college buddy would talk about. But there's a little polish on it. And now it's being published. I think, I mean, it's awesome, but it's also like, almost overwhelming the number of things that come out sometimes. Well, to be honest, every role-playing game is that. True. It's a guy or a girl or, you know, a man or a woman who goes, you know what, I want to do things differently. And then it's just a matter of how much money they want to drop on it to make it look pretty. Yeah, again, no no disagreements here, I guess. I mean, the great great secret of of RPG design is, is that one day fans are going to figure out that we're all making this up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I had a right. I had a conversation uh, recently on the podcast about railroading and the difference between an open sandbox game and a railroad game. And I was like, at the end of the day, the DM's still making it up, whether whether you realize that or not. You know, no matter yeah. if you choose what happens or he chooses or she chooses, they still choose at the end of the day what happens next. But that's a side conversation. But I was very interested. I know Jim is chomping at the bits, and I got to get my words in now because if I don't, I won't get it to. But I wanted, <laughs> but I wanted to ask, like, what was your background in your education? Because you, you kind of, you know, I'm not going to say you fell into it, but you, you showed your worth, and you were able to get working on this game that was, you know, in the in development. Were you a, a writer beforehand? I was going to school for philosophy, so you know I could serve you fries with your burger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, I went to school, and and I had always wanted to write. And I had won a couple of awards at at, you know, at the university for you know for writing and and you know writing contests and things like that. Um, but yeah, I the the real thing the real thing that really trained me as a writer 
and then trade me as a game designer was was uh, working for college newspapers and working for fan published stuff and then working for Shadis magazine where I needed to where I was on a strict monthly deadline of producing material. I've heard that from other people that that's one of the biggest struggles for someone trying to break in from doing this as a hobby and to being a professional is being able to meet a deadline, meet a word count, parse out what's important, what's not. And it sounds like you kind of got that early through, especially the college curriculum that you went through. Yeah, I wrote a lot for college. I wrote a lot of of stance papers. I wrote a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I wrote a lot. <laughs> and I, and, and it's, it's very helpful when you have other people who are not just paying you for it, but grading you for it. And, uh, and, and when you and I think that one of the, one of the things that really helped me a lot was writing was all the journalism stuff that I did because it teaches you how to present information in a very specific way. And, uh, because of that, that makes writing rules really easy because you know how to organize how to, how to organize rules in such a way that they're, they're easy to read. But then the other thing was like studying writers and, and to, to be honest, not reading a lot of fantasy and not reading a lot of science fiction, but reading a lot of Hemingway and reading a lot of, uh, you know, I'm just going to go, uh, I, I loved reading Dashiell Hammett and I read, loved reading uh, Raymond Chandler and I loved, loved reading Donald Westlake and, and Hemingway and then later loved reading Chuck Palahniuk and loved reading Brett Easton Ellis. But the, all of these writers had one thing in common, which was the maximum amount of impact with the least number of words. And that, that really informed my writing style a lot. And, and then uh, it, it's kind of funny as a little side story. When I started doing freelance writing for other companies, not mentioning any names or anything, but companies that have the initials White Wolf, I learned that there was a lot of packing in the writing. Uh, if, you read, if you read old White Wolf books, and th this is not necessarily true of the new stuff anymore, but if you read a lot of White Wolf books, they have a paragraph where they tell you something, and then they have a paragraph where they tell you the same thing in a different way, and then they have a paragraph telling you the same thing a third way. And the reason they're doing that is because they're all getting paid for the word, and they have to pack 98 pages of a splat book full of information. <laughs> and packing, 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 packing. So everything is, is... And so when I was doing freelancing for not only that company, but other companies as well, they would say, we need 10,000 words on this, and I would turn in seven and say, I'm done. And they'd be like, well, we need 3,000 more words. I said, I don't know what else to say. That is you know. that is very much the the Hemingway school of thought there, and I I love it, I love it, I love yeah. it, and and you you gave me so many different. I was just going to use the term plot threads, but we're we're having a conversation. <laughs> I have to remember that uh, because you said so many things I want to comment on, but I I'll try not to turn this into a writer's tirade. Uh, but yes, Polinick <laughs> is my absolute favorite author. I don't believe he's the best author in the world. I I actually hold that for Stephen King, uh, which might not be a popular opinion, but but Polinick is my favorite author in the world. Because him above anyone else taught me that you can write about a story about anything that you want. Ah, yes. Wait, Fight Club 2? Yes. Written by Chuck Palahniuk. It's a comic book. Oh, I, I need the first two. The first two issues are out. Oh. oh. All right. Pause this. We're going to run to a comic store. We'll be back. <laughs>
In a nutshell, I'll give you the I'll give you the nutshell. Uh, Don't ruin it for me. No, I won't. Uh, but the but this is what Chuck said. This is what he said. He said the the plot is that Tyler and Marla have been married for ten years or nine years. They have a kid. They're on unha- both. Everybody is unhappy. And then one day the kid disappears, and the ransom note is signed by Tyler Durden. Wow. Ah. Oh, so I love. Go. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Well, well getting back, because i got to remember, we're, we're on a tabletop podcast. I'm not here to talk about writing. I want to talk about discipline, writing a 1,000 words a day, and all this wonderful stuff. But we are here to talk tabletop. And one of the things, as you were describing all of that, that led a question to me is, uh, obviously, you, you got into uh, writing for L5R. And I should point out for those listening, of course, you, you are not just a, a tabletop game designer. I mean, you, you've done work on, on card games and CCGs and video games and, and a whole bunch of other things as well um but were you a tabletop player before you got involved with it oh yeah i have been playing role-playing games since i bought call of cthulhu in 1981 call of cthulhu was your first it was my first it was and and i think that informs a lot of (laughs) of my subsequent design career um because D&D really wasn't the first thing that i that i cut my teeth on i cut my teeth on a game that said you know what Scattering your players is more important than the rules. Rules give players comfort, and you don't want them comfortable. You want them uncomfortable. So here's a whole bunch of things that you can do to make them feel uncomfortable and ignore the rules, right? And, and just that, just that informed so much of how I play role-playing games, how I run role-playing games, and how I write them. I, I, I love it, and we, we are going to get into into some crazy detail in that as this goes on, which I'm excited <laughs> for. But for the moment, I, I, as, as terrible as this sounds, I'm like, all right, let's get L5R out of the way, and that way we can talk about all this other stuff, which, which it hurts <laughs> my soul at some point to say that, but, but, but it's true. This is being recorded. You know I that, know, right? and people are going to hear me, and that's terrible. The, the, uh, of course, to, to give you, John Wick, some contents, uh, me, Michael, Caleb, another gentleman here from the, the RPG Academy, uh, and, and the... Uh, James DeMotta's One Shot Podcast ran a game of Legend of the Five Rings for his show, and it was incredibly well-received, and I believe one of the big reasons it was so well-received is the fact that it was a gameplay style that was so much different than what most people come to the table. I mean, a lot of people come to the table for, you know, uh, beer and pretzel-style gaming and enjoy it, or typical fantasy and the hero's quest, and instead we got dropped, you know, heavy traditional Japanese drama, which I'm I'm such a big fan of, um, and it was such a different story. Now, you, you talk about using, you know, mechanics and all that to to tell story and that game systems can, you know, really help influence that. When you got into, you know, originally writing Legend of Five Rings and, and writing the first edition, obviously you were on the design team, you were a big part of the design team. What were your thought processes going into that of, I want to run this type of game or I want to give a tool set or, or what exactly did you think that sort of helped guided you through that initial process of making first edition L5R? The role-playing game? Absolutely. I, yeah, I got to clarify that for everyone listening. There, there's a role-playing <laughs> game and a card game and, and Mr. Wick was heavily involved in both, but we are going to stay focused on the, uh, the, the, the RPG as much as we can for now. The, uh, for the role-playing game, a lot of it was translating the card game into something that players could interface with as in a role-playing game. So it really became, well, what do you do in the role-playing game? It's like, it's what are, you know, what do you do? And, and for, you know, I mean, the obvious answer to that was you play clan samurai, right? You don't play geisha. You don't play, uh, you know, uh, uh, ninja. 
You don't, you know, you don't play, and you know, you play clan samurai. That's what Legend of the Five Rings is about. Now, if somebody wants to play, you know, uh, a silver merchant, you know, what? Okay, well, that's fine, but that's not what this game is about, and it's not going to do it very well for you. And that's really what what my main focus on the role playing game was 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 finding out, you know, what is it that you do, you know, what are the themes of the game, and all those other things. And by the time the game had come, the, it was time to design the role-playing game. The card game had been out for a while, and we, I, I, I mean, my, my goal for establishing themes for each of the clans was saying that, you know, each of the clans was about something, was about an element in Bushido. So, you know, the Scorpion clan is about loyalty, and the Crab clan is about is about courage, and the uh, and the Crane Clan is about excellence, and you know, and you go through the whole list, and that really informed whenever we made, you know, it was time to make cards, new cards for the clan guys. It was about, well, what is the theme of this clan? What does it do really well? Do you want to insert somebody who does something really different than that, right? And and all those kinds of thoughts. So with all that already preloaded, it became very easy to do design work for the different clans as as a character sheet. You know, we knew that we wanted, you know, traditional things like sword schools. Rival sword schools is a huge thing in 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 feudal Japan. So each clan had its own sword school. And uh, for us, for Dave Williams and DJ Children and I, who really worked on the on the role playing game, uh, we made a very conscious decision. We're all big fans of the Dune board game. Uh, which, if you haven't played, you should find. It costs about a hundred bucks on eBay. Yes, it does. It's hard to find, um, but find the Dune board game. And one of the things we really liked it was designed by the same guys who did uh, Cosmic Encounter, uh, which is does not cost a hundred dollars. Well, it might now because it's you know a big fancy game. But but the the thing about the Dune board game is that there are seven rules in the board in the Dune board game, and there are seven factions, and each faction breaks a rule. So if you're playing the Atreides, you know, there's a rule that nobody can look at face-down cards except for you. And if you're playing the Harkonnens, everybody gets one traitor card, but you get four. You know, and you go around the table, and that's how the Dune board game works. And we were like, and that really informed the Legend of the Five Rings card game, too. But more so in the role-playing game, where we went, okay, what is it that the Crane Clan School does? It wins duels. All right, so we're gonna make them completely broken, just unbalanced <laughs> in duels, it's completely unbalanced. So if you go up against a duel with a crane guy, you're like, "Look, I'm I lost." The, the, you know? and it's not and it's not dishonorable to do that because everybody knows you're gonna lose. <laughs> you know, the fact that you showed up is you know, <laughs> is what good counts, right? right? Yeah, Kikita for and life. Kikita for life. Okay, for life. And if you know, and you know, the crab clan kills Oni. It's what it does, you know. And the Lion Clan is all about is all about making other people better. It's not necessarily being yourself awesome, but making other people better. And and the Scorpion Clan is you never turn your back on a scorpion, you know. So all of these things were designed in the game to and and just fundamentally broken. Uh, so that and 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 it was funny because one of the complaints that we got about the game was like, well, the Crane Clan Clan School is broken because you can never win a duel against a crane. We're like, that is a feature, not a bug. Hmm. Um, you know, and so you know, for that, that was a lot of that. 
And then, um, you know, when it came time to do the magic system, I just essentially stole the Star Wars D6 Force system and mer- and, and merged it with uh, the greatest magic system of all time, which is Ars Magica, and just, like, made, locked them in a room together and had them fight and then pulled out, you know, what was left. But, uh, yeah, and, and for a lot of the other stuff, I just ripped off Pendragon, which is one of the greatest <laughs> role-playing games of all time. So, you know, I mean, if you read and play Pendragon, my friend, my friend Fabian is running a Pendragon game right now. And as a joke, he said, uh, wow, Pendragon stole a lot of things from Elfheimer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Funny how that works. Yeah. Funny how yeah. that works. Yeah. Okay. I'll... But, yeah, it was... It really was just an amalgamation of all these different things that I really liked, and 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 thought they and then gave them a coherent system that worked together with all of it. Okay, l- l- let me ask you: with with all the talk about clans, I, I have to ask you, what's the best clan? Now, I, I understand. Obviously, this is not a mechanical answer. This is a storytelling answer, and that is a foreshadowing sentence. But I have to ask John Wick: who's the best clan? Um, well, I, everybody knows what my answer is going to be, right? It's the Scorpion Clan. <laughs> you tr- ah, villain, villain, sir, villain. I I'm a villain because the Emperor commands me to be. <laughs> I, I I guess I guess which I makes live. me more honorable than you, Crane. <laughs> oh no no. I, I, well, I am a fan of the Crane. The Crane are not the best clan. The Phoenix are the best clan. Let's let's get that down oh, down it, for the record. Is that what they are? Uh, cr- cr- oh, okay. Crane's only number two. Yeah, yeah, go in your tower and study for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, the Five Nights of Shame, the so many good stuff. Ah, so many good stories. Um, okay, uh, let me ask you. You know, what is as you were developing? Obviously, uh, Legend of the Five Rings was the first big RPG product. Um, you know, of, of your career is that accurate? I mean, for for a large scale. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I we had published a, a kind of like a test subject called Hunters Inc. in Shadis Magazine, which is a vampire hunting role playing game. But it was what we used to kind of test the system. But um, yeah, other than that, L5R was the was the first. Okay, what were some of your your fondest memories from the early stages of of, of creating L5R and launching L5R and and getting out in the community and obviously the the growth that carried out from there. Uh, winning the Origins Award didn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed that would be a complete groan worthy experience. Yeah. Oh bother. Well, you know, I, and, and since then, and and I mean, I always <clears throat> I say this is that. War, you know, awards don't mean anything until you win them. <laughs> right? I mean, it is, it is, it feels really, really, really good to win an award. It really does. But you know, in the end, what? How do you measure best? With which metric is it? Is it feet? You know, do you measure? Do you measure best in the uh, best role playing game in feet? Is that what you do, or is it? It's is it ounces? Heft. Heft. You know. I, Heft? Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> That's why White so, Wolf you know. was so good in the day, because they packed their... Heft. <laughs> yeah, big heavy ones. You know, and, and, you know, and I am a little cynical about awards, but, you know, and self-admittedly, too. But, you know, I would never, ever, ever, you know, piss on anybody's award. I, I, I'm just not going to do that, because I remember how good it felt to win for L5R and how good it felt to win for 7C, and, you know... It feels really good to win an award, but yeah, the Origins Award didn't suck. And the Day of Thunder was was uh, the 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 day at Gen Con when the first storyline ended. Was uh, was the, was one of the 
I had one of the greatest experiences of my life that day. Uh, I and I counted it. It was funny because I had this memory in my head of when Peter Atkinson visited the AEG offices, and I was introduced to him as the guy who wrote Flavor Text. And he said, "Really, at Watsi for Magic, that's a punishment. You have to write Flavor Text." <laughs> And and I told Peter because I was a smart ass kid. I said, I said "Yeah, it shows." <laughs> and uh, but uh, that memory was ringing in my head when the last moments, when the last game of the Day of Thunder tournament was being played, and Zen, the nefarious Doctor Zen, Zen Fawkes, was sitting next to me, and he said, uh, and and I was looking and I was watching, and and Dave Williams was crying. And, you know, Reese Osby was crying, and John Zinsner was trying to be too butch to cry. And, you know, and I was getting all, you know, because two years of, of doing this story thing, and it was all coming to an end. And Zen Funk said, John, look look at this. You did, you know, tears, tears, tears all the way around. And there's 300 people standing around one table of two guys playing a card game. And uh, and he said you did a really good job. And I said no 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 we we did a really good job. The the art direction is fantastic. The editing is fantastic. The mechanic is 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 awesome. And Zen Fox told me he said John nobody's crying because the archery mechanic is cool. And and that was one of the sweetest things that anyone ever told me about L five R. That's and I think that is really the the sweetest thing anyone's ever told me about L five R. Wow, that's uh, pretty awesome, man. I mean that's that, that, that's impactful, and it, it's one of the things. And obviously, Legend of Five Rings has a a very very passionate fan base. Um, you know, I, I include, include myself one of those, and it's because we all do believe there is something special about Legend of the Five Rings. You know, you you say how do you measure a you know an RPG? What makes an RPG better? Is it feet? Is it is it heft? As Michael would say. Um, you know, to, to me, I go how rich of an environment is it? Uh, to without getting too technical, but to engage the types of fun to me, the, the eight kinds of fun as I know them, uh, and does it give a a you know rich environment to do that? And I've not found another environment outside of L5R. It is why I. I deeply love the system as much as I do and exactly what you said from a tabletop standpoint and obviously your story is related to the card game but it's essentially the same experience at the table I play L5R because if I play Dungeons and Dragons I can laugh around the table with a bunch of friends and I can do that real easily if I want to watch my my players cry for their characters L5R is, is such a, a rich, dramatic environment. Um, w- having said all that, obviously you were you were involved with the development of, of first edition. Um, fast forwarding to present day, what do you think of fourth edition? What do you think of, of the modern game? Do you still follow it that much? I don't, to be honest. Um, it's a very pretty. I have a copy. It's a very pretty book, um, uh, and and I, I think. From the general consensus of what I've been told, and, and I've kind of read through them, uh, I think third edition was too much. There, there's a, there's there's too much stuff in it, and it made it very hard to like grasp onto anything. And I think fourth edition pulled that back a little bit. And um, uh, so I, I I I mean I have not played it, but I do own a copy. I read through a bit of it, and uh, you know it's. It is what it is. There, there's a there's a bit of power creep in it that I'm really uncomfortable with. You guys familiar with power creep? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and oh, we're, we're, I mean, if you we're gonna get into if game you compare... me- mechanics talk, don't you worry about that, sir. 
if you compare the first edition Scorpion Bushi School, for example, with the fourth edition Scorpion Bushi School, um, just just do that. <laughs> There's you know, well, and and I'll, I'll compare the Phoenix clearly, but I'll, I'll follow your point. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I mean, to me, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of role playing game mechanics boil down to. Um, what I used to do as a game designer is I would throw everything in, and then anything the players weren't using, I would pull out. Right? So um, that's what I used to do. And these days, I, I have a completely opposite approach. I start with the absolute minimum of what I think I need. Like, sometimes even less than what I think I need. And I start adding things based on what players say that they want. So, um, and I think that, for example, the difference between the first edition L5R, and Blood and Honor, which is my uh, game about samurai tragedy, uh, really shows. One of them is incredibly minimalistic, uh, but and but I think also addresses some of the things that L5R uh, uh, addresses them better than I think that L5R did. Um, but at the same time, L5R is also really, really robust, and that means you can throw a whole bunch of different mechanics on it. Um, so, you know, those two things, if I were to redesign Legend of the Five Rings today, it would not be Blood and Honor. It would be a little bit more... There would there, be a little bit more specific things because you need to make Scorpion Samurai a Scorpion Samurai. You need to make a Phoenix Samurai a Phoenix Samurai. But in... Uh, uh, so the world, the, the, the world demands more. But at the same time, I think the mechanics would be a lot more uh, threadbare. Than, than what they were, and, and I, I've got to say on that note, the, the I, I cannot recommend Blood and Honor enough. I I am a huge fan of that system as well. I, I have the the hard thing of when I go, all right, I want to run a samurai RPG. Everyone goes, oh, you're gonna run L five R for us, and I go, well, yeah, not that not that I have to begrudgingly run L five R, but you know, it's sort of t top of the name brand recognition. But I I, I am working actually to to get a, a Blood and Honor campaign together because exactly what you say that 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 drama that tragedy. Oh, it captures it so well. One of the just just pitch it as the real second edition of <laughs> Legend of Five Ranks. I, I think we have to be quiet on second edition L Five R, don't we? Um, Was there a second edition? <laughs> I, I don't remember one. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Something about a D twenty got involved or some nonsense. Um, Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're 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 gonna avoid that. that. That's too much like the other people. Uh, but speaking of games that you designed, <laughs> hey, <laughs> sorry, Mike. Hey, you enjoyed the role and keep, didn't you? I did. The uh, speaking of games that you designed uh, again earlier on, there is another very beloved game that you designed, another Origins Award winning game that you designed, if I'm not not mistaken, called Seventh Sea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, t tell us a little about Seventh Sea, and, and then we're going to get into mechanics because there's one mechanic in that that opened my eyes as an early dungeon master. That there's one specific one, so I'll give you the pitch and I'll give that as the tease of what we're going to get into because it opened my mind to. Oh, there's more to the world than D and D, and it was one specific mechanic <laughs> from from Seventh C. But uh, but 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 go ahead, tell us a little bit was about Seventh C. Well, Seventh C was a uh, or is a uh, a swashbuckling role playing game. So the mechanics, while they use the same the same uh, uh, core mechanic, the same roll and keep core mechanic, a lot of things we had to change. Um, in L five R, the first the first version of Legend of the Five Rings, the rules were that if you got hit with a katana, you die. And that was it. There were no hit points. There was no armor class. There was no, you get hit with a katana, you die. And that was it. 
And um, John Zinzer, the owner of the company, came to me and said, we've got to have hit points. And I said, why? And he said, because there's got to be hit points. And I went, okay, you're the owner of the company. So um, I put uh, enough hit points on each character that if you get hit by a katana, you die. <laughs> and nice. that was really the... Uh, that was really that. But in 7C, the mechanic was entirely different. The combat, the fighting mechanic was entirely different in that um, we stole, I mean, stole, just like I, we stole a lot from uh, other role-playing games for, for L5R, for 7C, the main source of things that we stole from was every movie that Errol Flynn ever made and uh, where he was a pirate um, or where he was uh, a Robin Hood. And um, the other thing we stole from was The Princess Bride, the greatest movie ever made. One, um, one of it, at least. Than, <laughs> yeah, other than Big Trouble in Little China, which is really the greatest oh, movie you ever made. You are my way, man. <laughs> you, you have way, dropped you Chuck Palahniuk, you've dropped Big Trouble in Little China, and you made L5R, and we're going to talk WWE wrestling now. I cannot handle this anymore. I cannot handle this. Do you know the link between L5R and Big Trouble in Little China? You're about to blow my mind. I do not. I, I need this information immediately in my brain. They're the same plot. So think of Big Trouble in Little China. What? Wh how are they going to defeat Lopan? They're going to make him mortal so they can kill him. Correct. Right? Yep. Oh. <laughs> and, if you think, and if you think of Egg Chen, if you think of Egg Chen as Shinsei, now, how much sense does it make? Jim is vibrating in the chair. It literally <laughs> vibrating. What? Yeah. So, so yeah. I just. So, wow. so, so who who borrowed from who in that case? What's the copyright on L five R and Big Trouble in Little China? Uh, no, Big Little Trouble in Little China came. Oh, ah, okay, okay, okay. So, um, but, but, so moving on. To what I'm what I'm taking yeah. to that is, is is that L5R improved Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> that's that's that that is that, that that is my in shock takeaway from this right now. That that, <laughs> that, that, that low fan was wow. Okay, all right. Get get on Seven C. I'm gonna be stuck on this for the next three weeks of my life. Yeah. So Seven C has a little has a lot uh, of stuff from the Princess Bride. There's brute squads, um, you know, which. The famous line comes from there's flesh wounds. It's just a flesh wound. There's you know I mean there's a lot of things from from Seven C that are borrowed from are directly lifted from the Princess Bride. Um, but it was originally pitched uh, as Isaac Newton Man of Action. Is how it was originally pitched. We were going to be doing a 17th century not Renaissance fantasy role playing game. Because most role-playing games, fantasy role-playing games, are either high medieval or low renaissance. And we're like, no, we don't want to do the 1300s or the 1400s. We want to do the 1600s. When you have the beginning, of the very, very beginning of the golden age of piracy. You have the very, very beginning of secret societies. You have the very, you know, you, you know, you know all these things, all these really cool things. You have the Thirty Years' War. You have the Protestant Revolution. You have... Uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell taking over England and then getting booted out, and you have the restoration of King Charles II. All of this really, really awesome stuff, and and that's really where Seven C came from. And it was about swashbuckling, and it was about being a musketeer and being a pirate. And the phrase that I had in the back of my head was, "What would Errol Flynn do?" You know, that was the um, uh, you know that was the backbone of what Seven C was. 
And then it also had, uh, you know, uh, Jennifer, my my wife at the time, had a had had a lot of stuff that she wanted to do in the game. And one of the things, one of the underlying uh, themes in Seventh Sea, which a lot of people don't see, is that it's 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 a feminist game. Um, the the monarch of England is 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 an, a female King Arthur. Um, the Vodace has the whole underground railroad of sneaking women out of the out of the country. Um, a majority of the of the biggest players in the world are female, and <clears throat> you know, and that was one of the underlying things in the game. Me... Um, so much so, well, let me finish this really sure. anecdote real quick. So much so is that when we were talking about the guilds, because the guilds are very powerful in Seventh Sea, we we took the um, the concept of the Hanseatic League and gave it co- crack cocaine and let it go wild on its own. And uh, so we were coming up with the the most powerful guilds in Seventh Sea. So it was things like. Uh, you know, uh, the the most powerful guilds would be things like the uh, the blacksmiths guild, and you know, and, and things that everybody needed. The guilds are really powerful, and one of the things we had was we were going to have the whores guild as one of the most powerful guilds in the world. So we had it written on a on a whiteboard, and we're going through them, and um, one of the one of the owners of AEG came through and said, "What is that?" And I said, "That's the whores guild. That's one of the most powerful." He said, "No." And, and I was like, what do you mean no? He's like, no, you cannot have the Whores Guild as one of the most... And we're like, how about I change the name? And he's like, I don't care. We just can't have the word whore in the list of guilds. So we had a meeting, and one of the meetings... And, and this, is, this is an interesting anecdote. So we were coming... Uh, we decided that... We, I, we, I hated Companions Guild. That's lame. Um, but we are trying to come up you know, with a name for it. And I said, well, you know, a lot of jargon, a lot of slang in in different countries is that prostitutes are named after, after have women's names. And, uh, and so a lot of the guys who were sitting in the room, and it was only guys, um, started saying, well, I want to call it this girl's name because she's an ex-girlfriend of mine and she's a bitch. And so they were arguing about, and I was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to explain this to people that we're not going to do that? And as a matter of coincidence, uh, Jennifer came into the room um, after she was in another meeting, came in and listened to all of it, and she said, screw you all, it's my guild. And she wrote Jenny's Guild Hmm. on the board. And that's where the term for, for the Jenny's Guild comes from, was because Jennifer was not going to have it named after somebody's ex-girlfriend because they were a bitch. <laughs> let me uh, l- let me ask you on that. Uh, one thing on, on the feminist note, um, because uh, it's actually when, when people ask me, you know, what are some, some pro-female games, um, you know, or, or feminist, if you want to use the term, one of the things I actually point them to is Legend of Five Rings. Um, you know, n- not just because I try and point everyone to L5R in all situations, not that I ever do that. Um, I asked him where the bathroom was once, and he told me to go to L5R. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the he means to wipe your 
It's bathroom reading. It's a, I, I keep my bathroom at home book. stocked yeah. with the latest supplements, just just to make the the pleasant uh, the experience pleasant. Um, but one of the things I was going to ask you now, obviously, most of my experience from L five R is third and fourth edition. Um, so so correct me if this wasn't in the earlier editions. But one of the reasons I point to L five R is there's a couple families, um, you know, n- notably the Otaku family of of the. Um, uh, unicorn clan that is, I mean, very matriarchal, um, you know, as well as, of course, the Matsu family of the lion that are incredibly matriarchal. Were, were they that way from the beginning? Yeah, and it was a fight to get them. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, it, it, it's not necessarily true. Um, there was a lot of, I mean, L5R was, was a bunch of different people working together, and ideas got smashed against other ideas and things like that. I mean, the the origin of the Unicorn Clan was, let's have something pretty and purple with women riding white horses so that will, will attract females to the game. And, uh, and uh, I was incredibly disturbed at how cynical that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that was what it was, so I, I tried to make the most out of that. Right. Um, uh, the Matsu... Uh, when Matsusuko came in, who was the champion of the Lion Clan, um, Brian Snotty sent her sent her in without telling us that it was going to be a woman because we didn't specify a, genre, a gender. And once that came in, we went, "Oh, the the Matsu family is is matriarchal." And you know, and that took some time to convince people. Not everybody. I mean, there was there was a bunch of people who were like, "Yes," and there's a bunch of people who were like, "No." And eventually, the yes people convince the no people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, for for L five R, I mean, it it was, you know, a lot of it was even even by Yushikachko, the most you know sexualized character in the game, the most skin that she ever showed was a shoulder, and that was a very deliberate, you know, that that was that was a, a very deliberate group of you know small group of people going. There is a there is a way to have sex appeal in this game that does not involve cheesecake, mm-hmm. right? And and I was very happy that that a lot of you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the art, a lot of the characters and things like that are not were you know when when we were making the game we're not, right? And there is a way to make characters you know sexy, male characters and female characters, you know without you know being overt. And uh, for me, that was a that was that was very important. And, and of course, Daigotsu takes the cake on on, on the most sexy, in, in my opinion. But uh, that, that, Daigotsu, Daigotsu, he may have been after your time, sir. He he is a, a phenomenal character. But uh, the, the what I was going to point to is uh, just real quick, and we'll, we'll segue back to Seventh uh, uh, C. Is uh, at least in Fourth Edition. Again, I don't know if it's in earlier editions. The Utaku Battle Maidens that we talked about. Um, you know, within the the mechanics of the book, it says you cannot play this class unless you are a female character. That you have to mm-hmm. play a female character to play it, and I and it's an amazing class. I actually really like the Utaku Battle Maidens. It's an awesome class. Uh, but when we're talking about mechanics influencing gameplay, of course, I said before that that Seventh C had one that was amazing to me, and that was how death worked in Seventh C. 
because oh yeah, I, I was coming from a D and D world. Um, that was you know like I feel a lot of people you know that's how you start in tabletop. You get in D and D, and then I picked up this little book called Seventh Sea, and I go, this is cool, and I like pirates because why not? Pirates are awesome, and I started reading through it and was thinking about the game I was going to run, and then suddenly I get to how death and dying works, which is when you run out of and it's been a while since I played. It, is it major wounds? Um, that th- it's dramatic wounds. Dramatic wounds. Uh, once you run out of dramatic wounds you are essentially knocked unconscious and at that point it is the GM's decision whether you live or whether you die. Well, specifically, um, the way that it works is when you run out of dramatic <laughs> wounds you get knocked down. And that's a game term. You get knocked down. Which means that you can't really do any, anything without spending points. And the really the only way for you to die in 7C is for an NPC villain, because NPCs come in three flavors, they come in brutes, henchmen, and villains, is for an NPC villain to walk up to you and say, I kill him, and he has to spend one of the, he has to spend points, he has to spend one of the GM's points in order to do that. And the action starts at the beginning of the round and ends at the end of the round so other people can stop him. (laughs) But if nobody stops him, then your character dies. So it creates that dramatic moment of, now, Mr. Bond, now I'm going to end you once and for all. And, you know, somebody jumps on the villain before he can commit the coup de grace, right? Yep. And, 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 and go ahead. I was just going to say, what, what is amazing to me about that and what was eye-opening to me, it was, it is a game system where literally death cannot happen by happenstance. It is the yes. GM's choice to kill a player. Now, like you said, there's mechanics that the players can try and save themselves with, but the GM literally has to go, you player sitting on the other side of the table that's having fun, I'm making the choice that you die now. Save him, essentially, yeah. to the party. Whereas, you know, in D&D, you can have, ah, sorry, rolled a 19 on my attack roll, uh, takes you out. Sorry, buddy. Um, th- there is no, no distance. It's literally, GM, you, you have to make the choice make it that you're going to kill your players. And and to me, there was literally, I just, I stopped reading at that point and went, whoa, the world just changed for me. I, I, I If I use this mechanic, <laughs> I go, I literally, I can't hide. I, I am the DM now. I am the one controlling this world. And it was literally completely eye-opening to me. So I, I was wondering specific, just, just for my own, own little fanboyness, um, you know, why that decision was made to make death happen that way. And obviously you, you explained it before I explained my point of to make the dramatic scene. Yeah, to create the scene of the, the moment where, of real, you know, the moment of real peril, right? Because everything in 7C is flesh wounds. It's like, oh, you take a flesh wound. Oh, you take a flesh wound. Doesn't matter. Wounds really have no impact on your character's abilities or stats or anything, right? Um, and it, and that actually came from a friend of mine telling me about death spiral mechanics. And death spiral mechanics is where, where you get hurt, you start losing dice. You start losing bonuses the more you get hurt. And one of the things he told me is, I hate Death Spiral Mechanics because just when I need to be a hero, I can't. Right? And I was like, oh, that's... Yeah, I I get that. And so when we did 7C, 7C was a game about being a hero. And, I mean, in a way, all of my games, all 30, whatever of them, are are about being a hero because I don't don't want to play me. Um, You know, and, and so from that point of view, it was like, how would this work in an Errol Flynn movie? How would this work in The Princess Bride? How would this work in Robin Hood? How would this work in, you know, I mean, 
And the way that it works is that the villain says, ha, 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 now you're going to die. You know, that's how that works. And so let's make a mechanic that encourages that behavior. Right? Because that's that, 7C was really the game where I first jumped up and down on the idea that um, the mechanics should really, really, really... Uh, uh, the right word. Uh, not just not simulate because there's so much loaded baggage with the simulation as crap. Um, uh, I hope I can say I hope I can say that on your. On your Ab- yeah. Absolutely, we, we we hate GURPS constantly, and I speak for Michael not allowing him to get a choice <laughs> or knowing his opinion. Okay, but um, no, I mean I, I I just I'm not. Well, anyway, so the whole idea was how how do you make it feel like like a, 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 a swashbuckling action movie. And at the same time, how do you make it, you know, play like The County of Monte Cristo? How do you make it play like, you know, everything Alexander Dumas ever wrote? How do you do that? And the way you do that is you have mechanics that say, hey, you know what? If you jump off the balcony, swing across on the, on the chandelier, grab a beer from the table and swing it down while you hit the bad guy and kiss the girl, yes, you can do that, and it's on your character sheet. Okay. Here's how you do it. Let, let me ask you, let, let's open up the, the, this discussion a little bit about, because um, it is to me one of the, the interesting discussions that is kind of going on right now within the tabletop industry, especially with the explosion of, of, of the, the indie publishing and indie tabletops and all of this. One of the big conversations is mechanics affecting gameplay and how a game is played and what kind of stories are told. Because one of the things that we are really seeing in this modern era are a lot of super rules light systems, uh, very, you know, uh-huh. setting neutral systems is what we talked about. Um, you know, but on the other side, we, we still have, you know, our, our Dungeons and Dragons, we still have our L5R, obviously, you know, P- Pathfinder be- became a big thing despite it was selling the same product over and over again. Um, the my question to you is as a game designer as a person with 30 years experience and again this is going to be a nice big open broad topic is what do you see as far as do you believe mechanics can influence the 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 type of game that is played or do you see more of a people are going to play what they want at their table and just you know make the mechanics work for what they're going to play well, I think that the idea that this is a new thing, you know, from this new wave indie, you know, RPG thing, uh, when when and, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, it's just it's just to me it's a fact, is that this is from people who've only played D and D. You know, Pendragon was brilliant, was absolutely brilliant, and if you play Pendragon, you feel like an Arthur, you feel like an, a, a knight in Arthur's court. The mechanics are built that way to make you act that way. The the uh, mechanics uh, do things that that are 20, 30 years ahead of their time. If you want to think about it that way, there are other game systems that did that. Hell, even Ravenloft, the Ravenloft campaign setting from D and D does that. I had a huge argument with a friend of mine when I said D and D Ravenloft is not D and D because you may use the same core system, but you don't play them the same way. And the reason you don't play them the same way is because the mechanics dissuade you from playing them the same way. They encourage you to play the game entirely differently. You can't go around shooting and looting in Ravenloft, or you'll become an evil bastard who rules a demiplane. You know, you you 
you know, playing a paladin in Ravenloft means something entirely different than playing a paladin in Greyhawk. You know, playing a thief is entirely different than playing a thief in in uh, in Forgotten Realms, right? There really is no difference between playing in Forgotten Realms and playing in Greyhawk, other than in Forgotten Realms there's a whole bunch of really powerful NPCs who should be doing your job. But otherwise, there's really no difference between those two settings. But you go to Ravenloft, that is a different game. And you have to play it entirely differently. It's more lethal. Um, the, 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 the fact that the plane is aware and evil and wants you to be evil too, it's, it's awful. It's a terrible place to be. It's a game of true horror. And it came out in the early 80s. You know, the whole idea, this this idea that, that game mechanics, it, you know, people are only now adding game mechanics to games to encourage play styles is bullshit. It's, it's been around forever, and anyone who tells you that has only played D&D or has only played Burning Wheel, <laughs> and that's it. Those are the only two things that they've played. I, 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 and, two, two comments on that. One, I've got to say, I, I'm convinced, and, and I met someone the other day that I can finally say I found the unicorn. It, Burning Wheel, because you mentioned that, and I'm going to mention it briefly. That seems like a game that everyone says they like, but I can never seem to find anyone who's ever actually played a game of Burning Wheel. I don't know if that's just me, but I, I finally <laughs> met one the other day. I was like, oh, you've actually sat down and played a campaign. That's awesome. Um, one of the things I was going to say, you know, that, that I hear a lot and I, I see a lot again with the indies here because I mean you're 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 absolutely right. I, I mean there's the old adage there's nothing new under the sun. You know it's the same 32 dramatic situations for every plot that you've ever read. It's um you know the, the, essentially like you say the, the mechanics are you know while there may be some novel mechanics. Okay, wait, there, stop right there. Uh, the 32 plots. 32 plots. The 32 plots. Dramatic situations. Where does Fight Club pit fit in the 32 plots? Ah, uh, we'll see, and and that's why I, I throw it out there, but it I disagree. Doesn't. I disagree with the 32. <laughs> I use it as a teaching tool, but I disagree with it, and it's one of the reasons I love Polinek, because he, he he so much flies in the face of that. So so you called me on it, but you're right. I'm with you on that, but I, yeah. I, I throw it out as a point. Where, where does, uh, where does the, uh, um, oh, uh, where does uh, Slaughterhouse-Five <laughs> fall in the 32 plots? Where, where does, where does, uh, uh, oh, what is his name? They just made a movie, uh, Inherent Vice. Who wrote Inherent Vice? His name is just slipping my... Gravity's Rainbow. Mm -hmm. who, who wrote Gravity's Rainbow? Where does Gravity's Rainbow fit in that? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... 32. There's only 32 plots. Yeah, screw you. What? I'm sorry that you're limited. I'm sorry you're, li you're limited by your imagination. <laughs> Well, and that's always been my thing. See, now, now I, I said we're we're just going to open this up. My, my thing, I, I hear it, and it drives me crazy that there is nothing, uh, you know, that there's no originality. Every story's already been told, and of course, I, I I said it to make the point. But the fact is, in my opinion, originality comes from the character's interaction with the story, and that's where true originality can come from in a storytelling. And there are stories that have not been told. Um, th th there's not. There's plenty of them. They're written every, or I should say, they're written. They're published in, in different media every single day of the week um, and there's plenty of good stuff out there and, and now I lost my whole train of thought where I was going with this. I got the original Thomas, Thomas Pynchon was the author I was trying to There we go. Of. 
I, I, I've got the question I was going to have. I, I see a lot in the, um, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm still going to say modern era. I'm sure it existed before, but there's been an explosion of it where it's so easy, you know, to to put together a, a you know, a, a Word document, turn it into a PDF, upload it on, on RPG Geek, and, and now you're, you're a game designer. Um, and I see a lot of very rules-light, very, you know, again, system agnostic games where it's uh, you know, lasers and feeling is one that, that shoots up to me, where it's a very simple novel mechanic um and to me i go okay i guess i like that to a degree but on where i'm coming from is i go that doesn't provide me any kind of unique experience like l5r provides me l5r gives me okay i am going to you know go to feudal japan and i have a set of mechanics that make and give me tools to tell the kind of story that is interesting and engaging in that kind of setting Whereas if I play a generic setting, I don't feel I get that kind of uh, tools. I don't get that kind of support for for the type of game that I want to play because it's very unspecific. It's essentially given me a simple problem-solving mechanic and go play a game with it. And the expectation is that you're essentially going to make your own fun. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you disagree with that assessment? Well, I think that that one of the reasons you're having you are having more fun with Legend of the Five Rings is because the 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 context. If if I, I can throw out a whole bunch of words, and they have context to you, and they have meaning to you, and they're things that are important to you. That's one of the things that that we you know we hammered with with the card game was that we wanted to be something that was different than Magic. We wanted to just because we came out. You know, right when the plot of collectible card games came out, and we're like, "How are we going to be different?" And one of the ways that we're going to be different is going to make people care about what was happening with the cards, you know, what's happening in the world, right? We're like, we we're going to treat the collectible card game like a role-playing game. And so, you know, for me, it was about, uh, you know, if we're going to make the Crab Clan a certain thing, it's going to appeal to a certain kind of player. If we're going to make the Crane Clan something, we're going to make it appeal to a certain kind of player. And, I mean, I did the same thing with Wicked Fantasy, which is right behind me right now, which was um, when we did the Dwarves for Wicked Fantasy. And for people who don't know, Wicked Fantasy is my Pathfinder supplement that takes all of the classic D&D, cliched, boring, worn-out, tired, overused, you know, magic graces of Dwarves, Elves, uh, Humans... Uh, halflings and dwarves, elves, humans, halflings, and gnomes, and like turn them to eleven, and and like reinvent them in a way that would be that that. And I'll give you the specific example that the guy who loves to play dwarves in your group, because there is a guy in every group who wants to play dwarves, and that's what he wants to play. It's like he'll play an elf if you tell him to, but he would rather play a dwarf. And instead of, you know, saying, you know, hey, you're stuck in a cliff, you know, instead of, you know, instead of crapping on him, let's give him the world's most awesome dwarf. Just, he's going to read this and he's going to go, I never want to play any other dwarf than this one, right? <laughs> and so, so for example, so, so, I mean, you give them something to care about, you give them something that is awesome that they want, you know, the player says, I want this, and, and you know, as the game designer, as a game master, you go, here it is. You know, and then the, then plot comes when you threaten them, when you threaten that thing that they want, right? So you know, for the dwarves, you know, we had a, 
you know, we, we said the thing that dwarves are immortal. They can't, I mean, they can be killed, but they can't die. They don't sleep, which means that they're always working. They have to be working all the time, or they fall into this thing called melancholy, and they turn into stone. Hmm. Which is why dwarves are always working. They're always working. They're always working. And it's also why dwarves are so cantankerous, because they don't want to get attached to anybody. It isn't that dwarves don't feel anything, they're like emotionless, cold things. No, they feel too much. And so when they get attached to somebody, they're immortal. You're not. You're going to die. I'm going to go into melancholy, and I'm going to turn to stone. Hmm. So I'm not – You're no, you're not my friend. You know. And what does that do? It means it's important if you become a – it's important if a dwarf picks you as a friend. Hmm. Right? right? And then we added uh, we added this bit here, which I'll look for a second, but I'll keep talking about dwarves. But um, – and we did other things too. We, we – uh, we had a, uh, a feat that you can buy called the long walk, which is the dwarf says, I am going to walk to this city. And he does, and nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him from walking. And, when, and if he's at negative whatever hit points when he gets there, he dies, but he gets there. Nothing can stop him from getting there. And that's a rule. Well, and it, it's a... So, a, a... Very interesting. I, I love that that concept of turning to stone. Um, and I was going to point out, and and sort of this will lead to a question of you. You sort of famously or infamously, depending on who you ask, wrote a article uh, called "Chess is not an RPG." Um, <laughs> and, and for no one, anyone who has not read this article, I I highly highly encourage it. And and honestly, it, it, and I don't know statistically speaking, but but anecdotally, it seems half the people read that and go, "This is the greatest thing I've ever heard for tabletop." And half the people read that and go, "This is you you can't say this. This is terrible. I don't believe it." But I, I'm going to focus on on one point, and, and I'm going to say just for my personal record, I, I believe it's one of the most honest truth and bitter pills to swallow the information that is in this article because it, it really does hammer home a, a lot of heavy concepts that I feel a lot of people secretly know but deny. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to admit we're on the RPG Academy. Um, you know, th There's a different way to do everything, so I'm not saying that this is the best way. I'm saying this is what, what, what I personally like and obviously that, that John Wick has written. One of the things um, that you say in this article is that D&D &D version 1 through 4, uh, excluding 5th, keeping that in its own pile, are not role-playing games. Do you still stand by that yeah. statement, sir? Well, here's a bit of context. Okay, sure. um, the 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 idea came from the the problem, and it's really a, the, the the article is a question. It's it's not an answer. It's a question, and the question is, what is the difference between Talisman, which is a board game, and Dungeons and Dragons, which is a role playing game? What's the difference? What makes D and D a role playing game, but keeps Talisman a, a board game? And, and a better example is actually the board game Descent, because in Descent, um, you, get ex you have a character sheet, you get experience points, you keep track of your character and everything else. But Descent, if you ask anybody, is a board game. D&D, &D, on the other hand, which is essentially the same game. Descent is just kind of like all the stuff that you need from D&D &D boiled down into a really potent, top, you know, potent little pill. And then, you know, but so what is the fundamental difference? And um, and and uh, a friend of mine once told me, he said, that a role-playing game is, this is his definition, 
a miniatures game where you play one person rather than a unit. And that was his definition. And I was like, okay, so that means Call of Cthulhu is not a role-playing game. That means that that means that uh, RuneQuest, which was probably like the third or fourth role-playing game, is not a role-playing game. It means Traveler is not a role-playing game. It means Legend of the Five Rings is not a role-playing game. Easy, sir. Easy. It means... <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, okay, so so what is the definition of a role-playing game? And the, the title comes from, you know, chess is not a role-playing game. You, you, I don't think anyone can make a valid argument that chess is a role-playing game. But you can make it a role-playing game by giving your pieces motives. You can make it a role-playing game by giving your pieces names and motives. And if you don't win at the end, it doesn't matter as long as, you know, as long as you have the story of how your pieces succeeded or failed in their motives. You've just turned chess into a role-playing game. But there's nothing in the rules that makes chess a role-playing game. You had to add something to it. So then the question becomes, how is D&D a role-playing game and Descent not? If all I have to do is add an element to Descent, it becomes a role-playing game. Well, there is nothing in D&D that encourages role-playing. You can successfully play Dungeons & Dragons without role-playing, without your fighter having a motive or even a name. You can just be the fighter. I mean, I remember in the 1990s playing with a professional in the game industry, a published professional in the role-playing game industry who thought that we were weirdo wannabe community theater actors because our characters had names. <laughs> because our characters had names. Wow. Right? That, that's got to be a dry so, table to play at. Oh, you have no idea. So, uh, so... You know, so the whole—that's the whole notion of the game of, of the article was what really makes a role-playing game a role-playing game. And I think I'm not sure, but I think the 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 thing that makes a role-playing game a role-playing game is that if you do not role-play, the game ceases to function. Well, so a game like Legend of the Five Rings, if you do not play your character, just doesn't work. It it it, it ceases to be a you know a game at all. So. Role-playing has to be a necessary element in the game in order for it to function as a role-playing game. And that was what Chess is Not a Role-Playing Game is about. And, and, and So, to answer your question, the first four editions of Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing is not required. You could play all of them successfully without role-playing. So, are they role-playing games? And you have, now, you have a grandfather pro- paradox, where it's like the first role-playing game isn't a role-playing game. Even though Gary Gygax himself, I was on a game design panel once, who called me a wannabe community theater actor, um, said that role-playing games are a game where you play one miniature who is having an adventure in a dungeon. And that's it. That's what a role-playing game was. And I said, that means every game that succeeded you is not a role-playing game. And he said, I have no problem with that. (laughs) So, you know, I mean... Well, then, so that's really what the that's really what the essay is about is addressing that question. It, it, it's what exactly it, it's what you what you want to define of it, and and I was going to use the clear example actually of, of what you were talking about just prior to this thread of the conversation of you know your 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 
uh, dwarf character that uh, your dwarven character, you know, that has to, as a mechanic in your system, keep doing things or they literally they die. They turn to stone. That is a mechanic that encourages role play because suddenly you have to be role playing your character or your character dies. It's a mechanic that's built into it. And, and it's one that I, I have a lot of conversations with people about, you know, I am very much of the firm belief that you use mechanics to influence play. Um, one of uh, I'll just tell a, a quick story because um, it's a group of mine that, that we just got started where I, I've got we're playing D&D 5th edition but our concept is we, we have a, a kingdom that is actually being invaded and it's going to lose you're, you're in the, the last throes of, of fighting in this kingdom and it's going to be a nice depressing story and, and we're all just geared up for tears it's going to be phenomenal um, but one of the concepts that I threw on them because two of my four players I know them as traditionally you know they're uh, people would call them power players or min maxims you know I, I, I call them that the, they enjoy the challenge type of fun of one of the eight kinds of fun um, but the w- what I did to him as I went, there's going to be a couple, you know, house rule tweaks. And one of them is how experience works. Because experience in Dungeons & Dragons is based on what? Killing things. That's what you get experience to do, so that what is what encourages them to do. So I go, no, we're going to change that. You get 100 experience points every time you make a memorable emotional connection with an NPC or a PC, and another 100 experience points every time you interact with that connection. And now suddenly, the entire character development is, I now, if I want to be a power gamer, I have to do that through interesting interaction with NPCs, and I must take part of it, and that's using a mechanic to encourage roleplay. So I wanted to throw that anecdote out there of that's something that (laughs) that has taken off very, very well in that regard. Um, One of the the things, all right, so we've talked a lot about mechanics. We've talked a lot about game design. Uh, Do you still play tabletop? I assume the answer to that is yes. Oh, yeah. Um, This Friday, I'm playing in my friend Fabian's Pendragon game. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What what type of games that you play? And I'm starting to piece together. I think you might be a fan of Pendragon. I might be, yeah, yeah. I have every Pendragon book ever published, so. What, 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 what kinds of games, what kind of systems do you normally play? Do, do you normally DM or, or player, or, or, or what, uh, what, what is a, a tabletop experience with John Wick like? I, uh, I generally like role, I, I generally like game mastering more. Um, I, I'm, I have to be very, very careful as a player because I have a tendency of taking over the game, of being the, the guy who's like, like is the, the super assertive guy and everybody else is just kind of sitting back and watching him do stuff, um, which is why I became a GM because <laughs> I'm in control. But uh, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I was the guy that, that, that bought the game and invited his friends over to play the game. So my first experience with a role-playing game was running it. Hmm. And since then, I've just been... Yeah, there you go. And since then, I, that's been my role. And I think that that's true of a lot of people. It's, you know, if you are the guy who starts as the, as the GM, you're generally kind of the GM, you know, forever. Right? And, 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 and it's different for someone who's the player for the first time. Because the player for the first time... The, the, the thing that I hear from players all the time is like, I, I've never ran a game before. You know, I've read Play Dirty, and I've, you know, I've said, kid, you know, I'm not sure I can do this, right? And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that language of, I'm not really sure what to do. I want to do a lot of planning. I want to, you know, and, and my advice to them all the time is, you can do this. You, you really can. Pick something that's really, really simple 
It's just like learning how to write a story. Or, you know, you don't start writing a, an, you know, you don't start writing Game of Thrones, right? You don't start writing Lord of the Rings. You start by writing a five-page, you know, story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, and then you move up from there, and then you move up from there, and then you move up from there. You know, and and you know, you learn, you learn, and you learn. And the first thing that's like, well, the first thing you have to do is, you know, not run Lord of the Rings. You know, don't even run The Hobbit. Right, run something really, really small, something really, really short. You know, a one night, uh, you know, get together and you know, and try it from there, and then move on and move on and move on. That's the advice that I give. I give people. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 about and the kind of games that I like, um, uh, you know, are on my shelf. I mean, I'm kind of old school. So even though even though if you read like play dirty, which is like get rid of the rolls, you don't need these rolls, you don't need falling damage. Um, but a lot of the games that I have are games like Ars Magica. I have uh, I have Torg in back there, which which I love. And when I run, I throw out ninety percent of the system. <laughs> um, but uh, Ars Magica, Torg, Pendragon, looking at my shelf, Call of Cthulhu, um, whole shelf full of Call of Cthulhu. Um, the game Over the Edge kicked my ass as a as not only as a as a gamer but as a GM and as a writer and and, and all that. Are you guys familiar with Over the Edge? No, I'm not. Me neither. No. Over the Edge was a game that Jonathan Tweet was running that Robin Laws wrote a lot of as the actual game, and uh, and it's a game of surreal modern conspiracy. It's a uh, William S. Burroughs inspired role playing game. The guy wrote Naked Lunch. And uh, and things like and and uh, uh, oh I can't the, the ticket that exploded and, and all this sort of stuff. So um, Burroughs was a beat like he was he wasn't really a beat poet he was more of an author, but him and another fellow invented the cut up method, which is you take a whole bunch of you go through a magazine books and you cut out a bunch of provocative words and phrases. You throw them in a in a in a in a, in a bowl and you shake it up and then you pull things out. And then you write based on the things you pulled out, hmm. Hmm. and that's the cut-ups method. So, for example, um, I would take Mark Frost's book, the seven, and I would go um, useless Dublin, uh, diehard self-defense. Hmm. Sounds like a and, new Bruce Willis okay. movie. Yeah, exactly. So now you know, go with that. You know. And, and Burroughs would do entire sentences. I mean, if you read Burroughs' books, sometimes in the middle of a sentence, you have character change. And there's no warning. It's just there. And, you know, and, and there are sentences that run on for pages, and it's all really weird. So Over the Edge is a role-playing game that takes place on a really weird island and uh, where uh, 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 Jonathan Tweet said... I wanted to create an environment where someone could come up to me with the wackiest concept ever, and I would not be able to say that doesn't fit the genre. <laughs> so, for example, one of the characters is a sinister cup of coffee. It's a, an elemental from the elemental uh, dimension of caffeine. And and it can move between coffee and other caffeine, caffeine sources. Uh, there's another character who um, is in, and, and uh, he's he is a cop from the future whose mind has been placed in a TV remote control. He's been sent back through time, and his consciousness is in a TV remote control, and whoever picks up the TV remote control gets possessed by him. 
<laughs> and he's supposed to stop ten things from happening. Right? And one of the things, Jonathan Tweed explains, one of the things he's supposed to stop from happening is the two characters who are run by the two people who always have sex in the game, their characters always have sex, to stop them from having sex. You know, huh. and there's other things too. I mean, it, it is a wild, weird role-playing game. And here's the game system, um, which should be really familiar to you guys by now. This kicked my ass totally, which was I have the uh, I have the trait psychic assassin at four dice. I roll four dice. If I roll really high, I get what I want. If I don't, then I don't get anything, and I I don't get what I want. That's the game system. You now know everything about the game system. Hmm. <laughs> well, and. Go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so you know, and and I read that, and then I read the and and the book is like this thick, and the player section is like maybe thirty pages, and the rest of it is all the setting of the island, right? So, and in the GM section, it says, oh, by the way, that game system I told the players about, yeah, screw it, just look at the dice and you know make up what you want. <laughs> well, I, really, I, yeah, you know, and for a game about paranoid conspiracy, that makes perfect sense. Well, yeah, because right? yeah, you don't know if your GM's telling the truth or not. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, I, and uh, the sample, this, I'll, I'll finish this up. Yeah, the yeah. sample adventure in the book is, um, which has huge spoilers, so huge spoiler warning thing. Um, the sample adventure is when the players land, they get, they get confronted by a, a sinister figure who says, I am here so that you can know the secret masters of the island and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you run them through a bunch of adventures. And at the end of the adventure, at the end of the adventures, the guy brings you to a small basement with a single naked flat, uh, light hanging from the ceiling, with people seated in chairs with hoods over their heads. And he says, and they're tied to the chairs. And he's like, these are the secret masters of the island. And he takes the hoods off, and it's you, the players. <laughs> and he points at you, and he says, you know how your wife died and was killed by uh, yakuza assassins? Yeah, he made that happen. He wanted that to happen to amuse himself. And and you, you know how your sister died in a fire? He made that happen. And then he gives you a gun and says the only way to be free is to kill them. <laughs> I see why you like Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty wild. So yeah, I mean, you know, the other element of it is that it's so subversive and and one <laughs> of the things that I've I've said before is that all of the games I've made, I've I've tried to make them subversive. Well, um, Legend of the Five Rings is a role-playing game with no white people in it. <laughs> well, you know? I, I was actually good because it's another thing I point to. Legend of the Five Rings, it, it, it's a game I use to bring traditional tabletop players out of their comfort zone because I go, you're going to play a game where you can't loot the bodies, uh, where there's only five levels, so le leveling up. And again, this is all, all fourth edition, so I don't know how much is different. But there's no looting the bodies. Money essentially doesn't matter. You're a samurai. You get whatever you want. There's no weapon upgrades. I mean, you're, you're going to, okay, you've got a katana. You've pretty much got the best weapon that there is. You're getting it right off the bat. Uh, leveling up isn't really a big thing. I mean, obviously, there's some of it and some progression and all of that. Um Go play, have fun, and they go. Well, wait, wait a second. I, I, what am I supposed to do? I'm not supposed to level up. I'm not supposed to worry about experience. I'm not supposed to loot the bodies. I, I'm not supposed to rampantly kill. What do I do? You engage in story, and that's what. Well, you do. and also, the biggest danger is social pressure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest danger in the game in Legend of the Five Rings is social pressure. Is 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 duty to your clan. And when you play an Imperial Magistrate, which is how the game is written for you to play, 
you have divided loyalties. You're, you're sworn <laughs> to the emperor and you're sworn to your clan, and those two duties don't always agree. And then you have your own, you know, familial obligations, and then you have your friends, and then you have the whole thing is about, you know, who are you really, you know, what is the most important thing in your life? And you can't pick two, <laughs> right? You know, and then once you've picked one, you have to go back to the other one and explain, look, this is the situation I was in. I had no choice. It's not me. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not you. It's me. It's not, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to step in there, and I'm kind of going back at this point, but just uh, kind of the the impetus for the podcast that, that you're on tonight was kind of twofold. Originally, it was to be sort of a journey of a brand new person who had, who never really had DM'd before, but he had played a little bit, but he, he had a story he wanted to tell. And so I created a safe space at my table. I'm like, okay, you run your story. I'll handle the rules. You just play. And when you say, how does this work? I'll do that for you. And we were going to kind of chronicle his journey. That didn't, didn't unfortunately last as long as we wanted. Long story doesn't, doesn't matter, but it has grown from there. And then on top of that, we started doing actual plays so that people can listen to us play the game. And even that's evolved. Originally, the whole point was to demystify what a role-playing game is. Because I'm 40 years old now. I tell people that I role-play. And I still have people say, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean when you role-play? I don't understand. So the whole point was just listen to us play and that's what a role-playing game is. And and that's still subjective because you might play it differently than I do and play it differently than Jim. But essentially, it's a bunch of people sitting around a table telling a shared story, and they're using some mechanic to decide who wins and who loses whenever there's an argument at, at the basics of it. And you said something about it's not hard. And that, you know the, the point of what I'm trying to get to is when you had someone who said, I don't know if I could do that. We want to encourage as many people as possible to try, and I kind of like what you said. Is just just do it. Start very small. It can be a one page adventure where there's a locked door. Try to get to the other side, and that could be the entire first adventure. Depending on which characters are involved, they could talk about the best way. They could try a couple of different things. At the end of it, they open the door and huzzah, you've succeeded. That can be a first game, and it could be a lot of fun. It doesn't have to be a magnum opus your first time out. And I just wanted to re-hit that again because I thought that was a very awesome thing, and I wanted to make sure that to my audience that that's what I want you to get from this is that it's just a game. Have fun. Play it however you want, but try to be a DM because it will change the way you play. Um, I started, like you said, I started as the DM. I've DM'd 99% of my time as a as a role player. And so now when I play... I give my DM a lot more help than I think most players do. I, if I feel like we're being railroaded, I'll just go with it because who cares? I'm going to make it as much fun as possible on the way, but I'm going to let, if I see where we're going, I'm going to help the DM out. I'm still going to create dramatic scenes. I'm going to try to be funny because that's kind of my thing. But I think being a DM first gives you a new perspective on being a player and it allows you to sort of help drive the story forward in interesting ways. And as a DM, I think you should play because a lot of times it's that's how I recharge my batteries. Like if I've just gotten yeah. burnt out, I'll play. And even so, after like that first night, I'm like, I would have done that differently. Or uh, that was a cool idea, but this is how I'm going to twist it. So it really helps me come back to the table reinvigorated. You know, a lot of people, you know, ask me, it's like, uh, what's it like to play the games that you've written? And, and I tell them, I, I love playing the games I've written with somebody else running it because I get to see someone else run it, 
right? And I get to see what things they ignore, and I get to see what things they emphasize. I get to see what things they change. I get to see, you know, and I get to see, you know, some. It's, you know, when you're an author, you don't get to see someone else write your book, hmm. right? When you when you make movies, you don't get to see. Well, unless somebody makes a remake, you know, <laughs> um, you know, which, but, which uh, they're talking about doing with Big Trouble in Little China. Have you heard about that? Yeah, we'll. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and, and I think that The Rock has enough comedic timing and, and enough enough sense of comedic to to play the Jack Burton role if he if that's what he's going to do because we don't know as a numbskull, which is why Big Trouble in Little China works. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, with you know, it's there are so many things that are unique about role playing games. You know, Robin Law says that it's the only literary medium where the author and the audience are the same person. And, and, uh, you know, and for me, that's why making, you know, that's why that, that little thing is what's so important and unique about role-playing games that, you know, some games, which are essentially just really, really complicated board games, really don't address that at all. You know, how do you address that as a game designer? And that's what's really interesting. For, for me as a GM, the, the most, the, the, the moment that I reach for, that I really, really want as a game master, is the moment that the player isn't thinking, my character's in trouble. The player is thinking, I'm in trouble. You know, even for a moment, that's the moment I want. Right? And that's, you know, really what I go for as a game master. And as a game designer, everything that I put into games is to help the GM reach that goal. Well, I think uh, Jim's got one more question, and we probably need to to get, kind of get close to wrapping it up. But I do want okay. I do want to jump in one one thing. We we tried very hard on the show to stay uh, on the positive side. You know, we do we just want to encourage people. Uh, so usually we live by the motto: if we don't like something, we just don't talk about it. But I'm going to break my own rule because I play because I played Descent and I hated it. I hated that game so bad because I kept thinking the whole time. This is so much like role playing without the fun parts. Like it was, I literally it was playing it was D and D without the fun because it was all mechanics, and I kept wanting to try to role play my character, and I I really couldn't. And then I was like, well, let's just do that. Well, you can't do that because that's not in the rules. And I'm like, f this game. I don't. So I'm never playing Descent again because it's too much like role playing without the fun stuff. My uh, my buddy Jesse Foster uh, was playing World of Warcraft on a role playing server, and he was playing as his troll, and he was only speaking in character, and he was kind of like a Jamaican version of The Rock. <laughs> so he spoke he spoke in third person, but he was playing a troll because trolls are Jamaican in World of Warcraft. So he and he, and people were kicking him out because he was role playing, and he's like. Uh, 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 I can't remember his character's name, but he was like, uh, you know, I, I am on the role-playing server. Actually, he didn't even say that because he wouldn't address that it was a game at all. <laughs> right? He's like, why, why am I not your friend? And they're like, why don't you just drop out a character? And he's like, what, 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 is, what is that? <laughs> what is this you speak I, of? I don't, I do, what is this? Yeah. I do, not, do, do you wish me to speak troll? What is this? <laughs> All right, I, and and so the, and he kept getting kicked out because you know, and he's on the role playing server. 
All right. So anyway, let's let Jim wrap this up here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the question, and I know Michael's going to try and wrap me up, and I'm going to open a whole other can of worms, but I'm going to try and keep the can of worms small. Um, and it, it's because it's been referenced a couple times. Uh, and, and I have to say, as I understand, Mr. Wick, you you are a fan of the professional wrestling. Is is this true, sir? Oh, I, I have been a fan of professional wrestling since before I could remember. I will, uh, my grandfather would watch professional wrestling while he babysat me when I was an infant, and we would watch professional wrestling together, me sitting on his lap watching professional wrestling. So I have been a professional wrestling fan since before I had cognizant thoughts. <laughs> and, and I have to say, I, outstanding. I am I am a huge, huge fan as well. My, my one real quick question, I'll get my real question, is, is uh, who's the best wrestler ever to live? Uh, ever to live? I'm, I'm I'm hitting you with ever. Ever? Who's the 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 greatest professional wrestler ever? And then real quick, um, who's your favorite after that? And then we'll get to my actual question. Okay. Um, I think the general modern consensus is a split between um, uh, Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels. I think that I'm pretty safe in saying that. <laughs> you won't get lynched with that answer. Yes. I won't get lynched with that answer. I mean, you know, for the first two-thirds of his career, Shawn Michaels was a complete ass. Um, you know, and then, you know, I, I like how Jim Cornette says that people who find God, they go and find God because no one else will talk to them. <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, he had a complete, you know, whatever it was, you know, he had a complete thing, you know, he had a complete transformation. And then suddenly the last third of his career, he became this holy crap guy, right? And, uh, yeah, and, and then there's Ric Flair. And then there's Ric Flair. <laughs> Woo! And then there's Ric Flair. All right, so I'll... I'll we used, we, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Um, and then uh, my favorite my favorite wrestler, um, it's really sad because uh, there's, a, there's a reason I stopped watching, for the first time in my life, I stopped watching professional wrestling for three years, and that was after the Chris Benoit thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Benoit was my favorite wrestler. Oh wow! And I can't really say he's my favorite wrestler anymore, right? Because right. there's, you know, but at the same time, I mean, that was that was the guy that that um, I was in tears when he won at WrestleMania, when he won the the world title at WrestleMania, just like he was. So, uh, so I'll yeah. I'll throw in my so. quick uh, wrestling story because I used to be a fan, and it actually ties back into an earlier part of the conversation that I believed it was real. Like, I was that guy who, when the, when the ref got distracted by someone and my wrestler lost, I would break shit in my house. Like, <laughs> I was so mad. I'm like, that's not fair. Like, it was, oh, pure, unadulterated anger. But what had ruined it for me, and I don't remember how old I was, but I was pretty young, was when the movie The Princess Bride came out. Because in the storyline, they gave some BS reason why Andre the Giant wasn't around. And I watched the movie. I'm like, well, no, he, he just made a movie. And then it literally, like, the world crashed around me. I'm like, this is bullshit. This is made up. This is not real. And I had a crisis of conscience, and I have never watched it since. Wow, that's that, that that's a shame. I'm 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 still an active wrestler, and while best of all time, I have to agree with Mr. Wick's opinion. Favorite, I got to go with who Benoit won the title off of, which was Triple H. Triple H is is my guy. Lo- love Triple H. He's a have you seen? He's a storyteller's wrestler, and I'm throwing that out uh, there with okay. confidence. 
Have you seen uh, Max Landis's wrestling? Is it I wrestling? have. I love it. I love it, man. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Yeah. But the, the, the question I, I was going to get to you, actually, and, and Michael kind of hit on it, is wh- when I look at t- uh, professional wrestling, I go, this is tabletop. This is people acting in character, having story, and resolving conflict through combat. It's literally a tabletop game being played out in front of us is what professional wrestling is. I think it's phenomenal. And and my my question that I was actually going to get to you, Mr. Wick, is... You are a, a very notable game designer. You have been a fan of professional wrestling your whole life. I am unaware of a pro wrestling tabletop game that's been made by you, sir. How is that's this, correct. How has this not occurred? I haven't figured out how to do it. <laughs> have you by chance I, I, seen what's, what's out? Because there's a few scattered around. I don't know if you've looked at any. Yeah, there's uh, Worldwide Wrestling was the one that recently came out. That That's uh, uh, an Apocalypse World game. Yeah, and I was actually going to give a plug, yeah, because NDP Design is, is is who, of course, came out with that, and and I like it, although it's not exactly what I'm. I think it's a well-made game. Um, it's not exactly I, what I'm looking for in a game. I'm not a fan of the Apocalypse World system. Um, I don't like. I'm going to respect your guys' show, and you know, not spend any time on that. It's just it's no, not you, my. You, you can absolutely thing. shit on it right now. It'd make me happy. <laughs> I'll just edit it out. Oh, I, I'm I'm not a fan of it. You know, there it is. Um, that, however, that's fair. Yeah. I like, I like everything in that book that is not the apocalypse world system. I think a lot of the essays about how professional wrestling works and why it works, and you know, and things like that. A lot of them are really, really, really good. Some of them are very influenced by the, shall we say, Vince Russo style booking, mm-hmm. which is really, really bad. Um, I generally don't say is bad or is good, but. There is nothing redeemable about Vince Russo booking. <laughs> You're not even giving um, his, his, his early career in WWE? No. Okay. No, because that was McMahon. It, it was. That was Vince McMahon. I know. We, go, we, going, him, him shooting, you know, 15 really sucky ideas of Vince McMahon, and then 16, the 16th one is good, and McMahon going, we're going to use that one. <laughs> so I don't know who to equate the uh, the quote to, but I heard something recently on Twitter that made me, made me laugh, but it was also very sort of apropos that uh, – Basically, professional wrestling is a LARP where the audience plays the audience. Yeah. Yes, that is exactly – oh, wow, that is so good. Yes, that is exactly it. Uh, my friend Dan and I do a podcast – a podcast <laughs> called uh, Wrestling Sunday School, which you can look up. And we go through – we spend the episode talking about a professional wrestler. So even if, you, if you've never watched professional wrestling before or if you're a big fan of professional wrestling – we do things like talk about Bruno San Martino. We talk about um, uh, we talk about Jake the Snake Roberts, who I met at Phoenix Comic Con this year. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I turned into such a fanboy. I so I've never been st- I've been starstruck by by three people in my life now. One was Jewel. State. I met Jewel State at a convention here, and she was so unbelievably unearthly gorgeous. I couldn't. I was like, hi. And the worst thing is I had never seen Firefly. I hadn't seen the show yet. Mm. So I had nothing to talk to her about. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh, you're you're pretty. (laughs) Um, The second one was Harlan Ellison, who I was terrified would, you know, chew my head off, um, but didn't. He healed me instead. That's a different story. And then the third one was Jake Roberts. I met Jake Roberts, and I didn't know what to say. First of all, he's huge. Oh, my God, he's huge. And I shook his hand, and I said, hi. You know, when I was a kid, I was terrified 
And he was like, well, you know, you should come to my stand-up tonight, and we'll fix that. We'll, we'll be buddies. <laughs> and my buddy Dan, who does Wrestling Sunday School, so he's like, you guys should cuddle. <laughs> no, actually, no, no, no. It was uh, Jake Roberts said, we should, we'll, we'll have to, he said, we'll have to cuddle. <laughs> and, and, I, and Dan said, how about spooning? And Jake Roberts went, no, there's no spooning unless I'm in the back. <laughs> and I just died. I was yeah. like, I'm bantering with Jake Roberts. So anyway. J- J- Jake Roberts is the big spoon. Well, I, I was going to yeah. say, my, my my ever, ever search, which actually I, I gave up on a long time ago and j- just made my own damn one for, for a, a wrestling RPG, was the, the my issue with, with it is one of my favorite things about wrestling from a narrative standpoint is – I, in very rare situations, have I ever seen anyone do storytelling through combat better than professional wrestling? And it's sort of this conventional knowledge that everyone says, oh, well, combat should always tell a story and do all this from a tabletop setting. But I kind of rarely see that happen. I keep pointing to people and going, watch professional wrestling. Literally 70% of the story is told in combat or or a match, of course, as it's determined. With good good matches as opposed to the five-minute matches that we get now. Well, we, we, we get you, you watch WrestleMania every year, and you, you get the Shawn Michaels versus Undertakers yeah. or, or the Triple H. The, uh, Triple the H John Cena. Bryan. Yeah, the John Cena, um, uh, Kevin Owens match. Good uh, Lord. From, Unbelievable. From oh, my goodness. That was fantastic. Now, my problem, my problem with making a professional wrestling role-playing game is that, the yeah, you're totally right. The story is told in the ring. And in a certain way, if you're going to make a, an RPG, rolling for moves is wrong. Mm-hmm. It, that's not the way to do it. right? The only reason you're rolling is to see if somebody screws up. Mm-hmm. right? And that's not fun. Screwing up is not fun. right? So if I'm just rolling to see if I screw up, I'm going to hate rolling. I don't want to roll. right? And, and so from that point of view, I mean, from that point of view, I don't want to discourage people from rolling. Because that's the mechanic, and so that's not fun, and so the match doesn't become fun, and you know all that kind of stuff. Dan and I worked really, really hard on on a wrestling role playing game, and we we ran to that problem. We ran to another problem, which is two friends of ours who wanted to play the guys who did the Bearstorm podcast, Rob Justice and Mike Curry. Um, both privately emailed me and said these things. Uh, mm-hmm. Rob said, "I do not want to play the Undertaker. I want to play Mark." Mark Calloway, <laughs> who plays a character named The Undertaker. That's what I want to do in a wrestling role-playing game. And Mike emailed me and said, I do not want to play Mark Calloway. I want to play The Undertaker. And I have magic powers. <laughs> right? And I was like, this, so this isn't going to work. You guys can't play in the same game. Because it's, it's not going to work. You know? And so, you know, then we talked about how you know we would base the game on the on a on a minor independent promotion, and the game is about keeping the promotion afloat, right? But then that's not fun, because then you know, because you, you it's like one of the things that that uh, Worldwide Wrestling does that I don't like, um, but all the other things that I do like. If, if you're a fan of pro wrestling, you should get the game just to read it. It's it's really really good. Um, is that you have a character who has severe drug problems and affects his performance. I'm like, I don't want to play that. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody else may want to play that, but that's not the wrestling game that I want to play. I don't want to know about the cutthroat, backstabby politics in the locker room of Hulk Hogan going, well, you know, brother, 
you know, if we put me over in this certain way, it'll look good for you, you know, type thing. I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to do that, you know. So, um, however, what I did stumble across was eFeds. You familiar with an eFed is? I'm not familiar. No, no me either. Okay. So an eFed is um, a bunch of people who get together and they have their character, right? And uh, the way that the private eFed that I'm in works is that um, I, uh, we have a booker, and the booker says, okay, you and John are going to have a match, and I want, I want you to go over. All right? You guys figure out how that... You're married together for, uh, for four shows and two pay-per-views. So you two figure out your feud. And then goes to you know the other people and say, okay, you guys are married and you're going to have this kind of feud and blah blah blah. And then you and I come up with it. And then the 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 shows are email posts, and you and I do our little like confrontation thing. And the other players don't know what's going on, but they know what's going on in their program. But they don't know what's going on in our program. And they don't know how it's going to end, and they don't know you know the twists and turns of it and all this stuff. So all the other players become the audience. Hmm. You see what I mean? Interesting. And that's that's really fun because it it is role playing, right? And and it's and again it, it invokes the the Robin Laws thing where the the author and the audience are the same person, right? Which I modified just a little bit. I think Robin's really right about that. But I think that 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 to to, to modify just a little bit, which is which is it's a story, it's a narrative, it's an interactive fiction game where the other players are your audience. And to a certain extent, you're your own audience too. But so the way that the Fed works is that um, is that you and I do our our blow off our blow off match at the pay per view, and the other players don't know which one of us is going to win or how the or how the match is going to end, and we figure that out, and then we tell it together in in re- like replying emails. When when the momentum of the match shifts to me, I'm in charge and I'm writing what's happening. Even even when you rake my eyes and the momentum changes and then you start telling what's going on in the match. And to me, that's the role-playing game mechanic that I like the most. Hmm. For, I, for, I, I was going to uh, say, if you would have told me b- before you, you went on that explanation that, that you enjoy essentially a play-by-post wrestling RPG, I would have turned up my nose so much. Like, you gotta be kidding me. And then you just described that. I'm like, that's pretty darn cool. Um, I really like that concept. Well, I, I, well, I, I just want to jump in there very, very quickly. Um, I don't know what your, what your thoughts are. We do need to wrap it up. Uh, but that sounds a lot to me like a fiasco playset where you could set up the wrestling relationships and then the drama becomes, you know, do you win or lose that match? And I, I don't know what the longevity of that would be, but I could see there being a lot of fun in playing like a worldwide wrestling fiasco playset, which there may be one. I I gotta be honest. I read I read fiasco through, and and I was like, okay, so this is an improv game. Yes, I've, I've played. I I did this when I was in theater in college. <laughs> yeah, it did. I, it, I don't know. Don't, I don't know if I would I'm call sorry, it a role playing game, but it was still fun though when I played it. Oh yeah, I mean, because it's an improv game, and and you know, it's. Did you guys ever hear about the Great Del Moody, the card game? Yeah, I have not. No. Okay, you know that the Great Del Moody is asshole. Yep. The the college drinking game. Yep. That's exactly what it is. All right. And all he did is put new art on it. <laughs> okay, that doesn't make you a game designer, buddy. <laughs> Sorry. 
And, you know, all of the Nordic... I mean, I'm a big LARP guy, right? I love LARPs. But all the Nordic LARP stuff where people are like, we're reinventing role-playing games, blah, blah, blah. You're doing improv exercises <laughs> that have been around since the 50s. You don't get to call it Nordic LARP and say that you're a game. No, sorry. No. <laughs> okay. Well, we clearly are going to have to have you back on at some point in time because I don't think we got <laughs> anywhere near the topics that we had planned on, but I loved this conversation. I thought it was great. I'm so thankful for you coming on. I know Jim wants to say some things before we wrap up, but I just want to say before we do, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, sir. And yeah, thank you for inviting me. I, I was just going to say, I mean, I, when I'm looking at my list of things I wanted to talk about, we, we hit, I think, 10 of like 115. <laughs> so, yeah, he's not exaggerating. Scratch the surface, scratch the surface. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for talking. I mean, we really do appreciate it. Um, you know, obviously, a, a person that has the mind of the industry and a mind of game design that you have always welcome on the show. I'll, I guess I'll kind of speak for Michael yeah. on that. But I'll try uh, to hit my head here. So when you see me nodding. <laughs> the, uh, did well, you thank do, you for inviting me. Did, did you want to do fun. the final exercise? I, I'm not ready. Okay. Th this one kind of came out of nowhere, and I don't want to screw it up. Okay. Well, you, you don't get to take part in the cool exercise at every other. Every but we'll other have celebrity. you on again, and we'll do it. When there. we do part two, you'll, yeah. you'll get to can, take part in the choose your own do, adventure story. I can do. I can do a choose your own adventure story unless you guys gotta go. No, what, what Michael actually does is is every guest that he has on this particular show gets to make a decision, and then it's the continuing arc as each decision is made by each different guest and progresses. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Forward. Problem so is, you have to come back for part. Yeah, two to because get that. this kind of came out of nowhere, okay. and I haven't written the next part, so I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to like just make some shit up right right now and it not That's not be cool. Entirely fair. Yeah, that's entirely. Uh, fair. So the, the last thing I'll say, then again, I'll let Jim fully close. Uh, any links that you want us to put into the show notes to your website, to any projects you're working on, just anything that you want us to include, just send through to Jim, and then I'll make sure they get included. Uh, we have Sean's episode comes up this Thursday, so it will probably be two weeks from this Thursday when this will come out, and then I'll shoot you some links. Okay. Um, uh, that way you can listen to it or, or not. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Oh, I'll pitch it on my, you know, social media oh, stuff. That would be fantastic as well. We, we, we certainly appreciate it. The last, uh, j j just two things I wanted to ask you um, was con-related stuff. Are you going to Gen Con? I'm not. I was invited to go to a small con uh, called GlitchCon in Arkansas uh, that uh, a very good friend of mine runs the gaming section of. And they pay for my ticket. They put me up in a hotel, and I've this is like my fifth year going there. And usually it's a week before Gen Con, so I go to GlitchCon and then I go to Gen Con. But this this time they moved Gen Con up so on the same weekend, and they've invited me again. And I I, I can't say no. <laughs> GlitchCon is a fantastic convention. I have a lot of fun there. Well, let, let, let me let me put you on the spot one more time then. <laughs> Um, be, because the, the, the wonderful, uh, Michael who sits here to my right, uh, is putting on a con here in wonderful Cincinnati, Ohio, the second weekend in November. Would you at all be interested if perhaps you had the same accommodations provided for you? I'd be happy to go. Right, we will be in touch. And then we can just sit down and, you know, talk about this kind of stuff all day long. And, and th th then I can, you, you, you can sample my, my tabletop RPG, which I feel I've solved all of the problem. My, uh, my wrestling tabletop RPG that we tell a story oh, yeah? through match. So we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to I, play around. I'd be, I'd be very interested to see Oh, you, you'll hate it because there's no role play mechanics at all. It's essentially a board game. Don't worry about that. <laughs> it's Descent with wrestlers. I hate it. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we have to go, or this will keep going all night. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much. Like I said, it'll be up in two weeks. Uh, the email address that that we um, did this on is that your primary one that I can shoot you some information to as far as like when it's coming out and a link and all that stuff. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll send you. And send me. Send me your wrestling game. I want to read it. The uh, okay. Well, now I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll send. You, I will. I'll, I'll send you some stuff. I'll break your heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It'll be crushed. Um, but I'll, I'll send you some stuff. And, and and John, again, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It, it was a treat to talk to you tonight. I agree. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Good you evening. Good night. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGAcademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at The RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.